Psalm 96 sets the stage for what we are investigating and certainly identifies with the current events that we are experiencing today. This psalm was written by King David according to 1 Chronicles chapter 16 verse 7 and it calls for a commitment that is certainly timely for our day, the day in which we live. It was timely in that day. God's people had abandoned the principles that God gave them to establish themselves as a nation under Him. King Saul had led them away from those principles and... uh, King David now taking the place of King Saul comes back to establish once again Israel as one nation under God. In this psalm, David is setting forth the commitment that is required to make Israel great again and the principles of God are timeless and certainly they relate to our making our country great again as well. Certainly these are last days. And according to Bible prophecy, we are in that Laodicean period of the church age, which is the final period, the period in which Christ returns to the earth for the church. The call that David rendered to the people under God's guidance as he became king certainly is relative then to our nation today. David wrote this under the inspiration of God. O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is feared above all gods, for all gods of the nations are idols. But be praised that he is to be feared above all gods, For all the gods of the nations are idols. Isn't that remarkable? As David writes that. He adds then, But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Give unto the Lord. O ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before Him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he cometh. For he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. In our study of Bible prophecy, we explore the things that are currently taking place in our society as it was revealed in Revelations chapters 2 and 3, the period of the church age. And then we examine the things that are about to take place in the heavens. Following the rapture of the church, we examined, as you will recall, and as I keep remembering you, we have examined the judgment seat of Christ, which is an awards banquet in which we are going to be uh, receive commendation for that which we have done in the service of the Lord. 
And then it's going to be a commission to that role that we're going to play, each one individually and collectively together, as we go into the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign here upon the earth, and then eternity itself in a new heaven and in a new earth. And so in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we viewed what's taking place today. In Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, we saw a worship scene taking place in heaven, and the Lamb that appeared to be slain was able to take the scroll from the one that sat upon the throne and break its seals and reveal to us what God intends to do in the future. In chapters 6 and 7, we heard part of the script of that catastrophic drama that is going to be played out, and we saw a a preview of that in our review of chapters 6 and 7. Remember, chapter 7 came along and was inserted in the midst of this revealing of the of the drama that's going to occur on the earth, there was a time out to show that God had appointed and they would serve at that time 144,000 evangelists that were going to spread the good news of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now we come to chapter 8. And in chapter 8 and 9, we have the curtain open and the drama actually begins here upon the earth. The 8th and the ninth chapters of the book of Revelation can be divided into four sections. The first called the pregnant pause, a half hour of silence in heaven itself. And then there is the persistent uh, preparation that takes place. That's followed by and accompanied by prevailing prayers and then the predicted punishment. So in chapter 8, we have the first four trumpet judgments that were introduced. It begins with Revelation 8 verse 1. And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. The events are so catastrophic that are being revealed, that are going to occur here upon the earth with the devastation we saw in the introduction. A quarter of the earth's population is wiped out. We'll see greater details then added. In that first three and a half years, it seems tragic. And uh, then when we get to the last three and a half years, we find that just uh, a minor's child play, it would seem, to the things that are going to occur as we have those one catastrophe after another, one natural calamity after another as God brings judge upon the earth. And so as that seventh seal is broken and there is a glimpse into the future, in Bible prophecy, all of heaven shuts down and is silent for half an hour. Now remember, as that seal was opened, they were celebrating and praising and and singing glory to God And now that seal is broken and there is deathly silence. It's a time to ponder and to consider what God has revealed in the past and what He is revealing now for the future and to recognize it's an awesome thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. There is a pregnant pause that occurs. And then in verse 2, we have, And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, 
and to them were given seven trumpets. We had a seven seal scroll that was opened, and as the seventh seal is finally broken, and we see what's going to take place, what is going to take place is explained to us in seven trumpet judgments. So he said, I saw seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And then, skipping down to verse 6, it says, And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. There is persistent preparation that is in order today for the events that are going to occur then. And we see those preparations in this section as we look at it together. The current events, the news that we see day by day is giving us clear understanding concerning God's persistent preparation for that final act when He is going to rapture the church to heaven and when all judgment breaks out here upon the earth for a seven-year period. Angels are viewed as continuing their preparation to unleash those judgments during the tribulation and they are restrained by the silence and then they prepare to sound. When the silent time is over, the judgments are about to be unleashed. These judgments were prophesied by Enoch according to the book of Jude, verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, uttered that prophecy. Not only was it prophesied by Enoch, but it was anticipated by the psalmist in the psalm that we read today, For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth, and he shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with truth. And then, having it prophesied and having it anticipated, it is verified to us by the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, Paul wrote, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him up from the dead. Each of these seven angels then that John sees has a trumpet. As we study trumpets in the scriptures, we find that they are used in the Bible in a variety of ways. They're used as a summons to worship and they are used as a summons to warfare. The idea of the trumpet originated with God himself and he dictated the manner in which they were to be used. I've never been musically reclined or declined either. But in the eighth grade, I decided to take up the trumpet. And I took it up because it's so prominent in the scripture. I thought maybe I could play the trumpet and then God could use that when I got to heaven. Well, he showed me very quickly that he dispenses the gifts according to his purpose and according to his plan, and that didn't work out too well. But I was 
drawn to the trumpet by my reading scripture and the use of the trumpet in scripture. Priests only were qualified to blow them, and after all, I had already committed myself to be a preacher and equated that in some way or other with the office of the priest. But there were different kinds of sounds that were to be given on the trumpet on different occasions. So the priest had to blow with accuracy so that the congregation would understand what the call was and how they were to respond. The trumpets that are mentioned here are warlike in their character and they announce the divine judgment that is going to be released then upon the earth. So we go back to Revelation chapter 8 verse 3 and verses 3 through 5 give us the prevailing prayer as the preparations for judgment are being shown. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a gold censer and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings and an earthquake. We're not given the identity of this particular angel. Some commentaries would identify it as Jesus Christ but the scripture does not identify him nor their characteristics there that would support that. He is seen, this angel is seen in serving in a priestly role and the emphasis of the text is that the prayers of the saints are like an incense ascending up before God and in the breaking of the fifth seal, remember the martyrs cried for judgment and the prayers of that day will finally bear fruit when there will be judgment and God will have vengeance upon those. Fire from the altar is then cast into the earth. Fire is always, wherever we find the word fire in the Bible, <clears throat> is always a symbol of judgment. And judgment certainly is in the making here. God's provision of grace, remember, precedes this time of judgment. Remember the seventh chapter that we looked at last week talked about the evangelism and the conversion. And yet, of course, the larger host of people reject the gospel even in the midst of the calamities that God is bringing in judgment upon them. So prayer is a supporting element that is like incense before God. But the casting of the fire then is to announce the judgment upon the earth. And then we are exposed to the predicted punishment. The first trumpet sounds in verse 7. The first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of all trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. The language here is not symbolic. It indicates a literal judgment. There's an interesting similarity between these judgments, and if we go back to the time of Moses, in dealing with Pharaoh to release the children of Israel, there's a parallel between the plagues, plagues that they experienced and those that are going to come here upon the earth in the tribulation. The second trumpet sounds. And as it were as a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea and a third part 
of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures that were in the sea and had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. Now this is not a literal mountain. Whatever it is, it has the appearance of a mountain. The language says, as it were, a Greek mountain. It's apparently some kind of meteor mass that smashes into uh, the sea or uh, that resembles a mountain on fire or some speculate it might be volcanic eruption of some sort. We're not given any detail, just this illustration, as it were, a mountain on fire is cast into the sea. The thing that we see <clears throat> is the result of it. Excuse me. <clears throat> the result, a third part of the sea turns to blood. A third part of the creatures that are in the sea die. And we recognize God's judgment is at work. The third trumpet sounds. And there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. So this is another one of the celestial judgments where it's visioned as coming from heaven. It's described here as a star, or as we find in the Greek text, a meteorite. And uh, it's called wormwood, and it's going to strike the waters, the fresh water supply of the earth, so that a third part of all the fresh water supply is undrinkable. The fourth trumpet sounds. And the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars so as the third part of them was darkened and the day shone not for a third part of it and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of other voices of the trumpet of these angels which are yet to sound. So this judgment is going to darken the sun and the moon by a third part and the stars of heaven by a third part. This is a judgment that will cause great hurt and fear upon those that are here upon the earth. The change of weather, there will really be something to crow about in that day about weather change, but it will be beyond their capability to deal with. And I say they are, for remember the church is raptured before these things begin and we only view them from heaven. But those who reject Christ as Savior then go into this period of judgment upon the earth. You'll notice the term a third, a third, a third, I will remind you that in the initial rebellion that brought all of this about, that rebellion that began in heaven among the angels, it was a third part of the angels that followed Satan in his rebellion against God. And uh, we see a duplication then, a reciprocation, if you will, of uh, that in these judgments. In the ninth chapter, we have the fifth and the sixth judgments. They are identified in the eighth chapter by the angel flying and saying, Woe, 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 as he announces there are three woes that are about to come upon the earth. And so 
these fifth and sixth trumpet judgments reveal them. According to Revelation 8.13, these judgments are visited upon the inhabitants of the earth. I remind you that every Christian is identified as a citizen of heaven, a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so these judgments do not relate to us, but to those uh, that are inhabitants of the earth. Those that are unbelievers uh, uh, are going to experience these things. The fifth trumpet reveals then a star fell from heaven into the earth and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Now, the tense of this verb tells us that the star had already fallen from heaven. John was not told when the fall occurred, but it had occurred before John sees the vision. John was given to understand that this star is an intelligent being. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus told the 70 disciples, I beheld Satan as a lightning fall from heaven. By this statement, then Jesus refers to the fall of Lucifer or Satan uh, through which he becomes known to us as Satan according to Isaiah chapter 14. And so there can be little doubt that the star that is visioned here is Satan and it's a reference to his original fall. A pit is opened in verse 2 of chapter 9. He opened the bottomless pit and there arose a smoke out of the pit and the smoke as of the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. So the fallen star is given the key to the bottomless pit and is given permission to open it. Now according to Jesus' encounter with the demons uh, when he cast the demons out of the demoniac and the Gadareans, uh, uh, they feared going to the bottomless pit. You remember they begged Jesus to let them go into a herd of swine so they wouldn't go to the bottomless pit. And Jesus granted that. It, it seems temporary. I'm not sure where they went when, when they ran into the sea and choked, uh, all the pigs choked and died. Not sure where they went from that point. The scripture doesn't tell us. Jude, in his short writing, says the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under judgment of the great dead. So just as those angels did not escape the judgment of God, according to Second Peter 2 verse 4, neither then will man escape the judgment of God as it's identified here. The bottomless pit is referred to in Scripture as the abyss and as the prison in the lower parts of the earth where it is contained. That's where Christ went following His uh, crucifixion and His resurrection. He went to the bottomless pit and announced a victorious uh, achievement and victory over the fallen angels. You're probably a little more mature than I. I doubt if he said na 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 but some way or other he he acknowledged the victory had been achieved uh, uh, that which they sought to defeat. Demonic activity is used as a tool of Satan throughout Scripture and certainly we see it here in uh, uh, Revelation chapter 9, uh, verses 3 through 6, there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, 
neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but they should be tormented five months, and their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he stingeth or striketh a man. And in those days, men shall seek death and shall not find it. They shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. And then in verse 7, And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were as it were crowns like gold, and their faces like the face of men. And they had the hair as the hair of a woman, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had the breastplate as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings and the sound of chariots like like the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like scorpions. And these were uh, stings in their, there were stings in their tails and their power was to hurt man for five months. These events then follow the release of these creatures from the pit and clearly shows demonic activity. Remember those that are identified as being contained in the pit now are those that uh, fallen angels that cohabited with women prior to the Noahic flood to produce a super race that has been imitated by Greek mythology and Roman mythology in which they envision gods coming to the earth, cohabiting with women and producing a super race. But we see it was fallen angels that came to the earth and brought that about. Notice the length of their torment. The others, we don't have a great deal of specific about the length of time. It's all going to occur during a seven-year period. But this is identified as being specifically five months. We might note that grace, the number of grace in the Bible and Bible numerology is five. And certainly the grace of God prevails to stop them from dying, but to give them an opportunity to repent. But alas, repentance does not come on the part of most of them. Their king that leads this is identified as Abaddon uh, and Apollyon. That is, those are terms that are descriptive of Satan. Said they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue it's Apollyon. So Satan is their king. The the Hebrew word Abaddon and the Greek word Apollyon both mean destroyer and identify his role. We're told then in verse 12 of chapter 9, one woe is past. Behold, there come two more woes hereafter. It would certainly be hard to exaggerate the drama and the horror that is going to be visited upon the earth during that period of time. In verse 13, the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. Now the golden altar in the temple and then uh, earlier in the tabernacle was placed right in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And uh, this is the location for this action that we see here. The voice is that of God or of some designated messenger as the voice comes from the four horns on the altar. The four horns is where the sacrifice was tied and identifies power and dominance over them. 
In verse 14 he says, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. So the voice that speaks from the altar instructs then the sixth angel to sound and the sounding of that trumpet is to loose four angels that are bound in the Euphrates River. The four angels are not those that were referred to in chapter 7. Those we saw are at the uh, the control the four winds of the earth, but these in in uh, chapter uh, nine identify again the location from which they're going to come, and that is out of the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River is uh, one of the famous rivers of the Bible, and still a dominant river in that area uh, of Iraq. Uh, you may remember the conflict uh, with Iraq and the situation concerning uh, the Euphrates River as it was mentioned at that time. We're told in verse 15, the four angels then were loosed, which were bound there, which had been prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year, in which they would slay one-third part of men. Now we've had a third part of of life killed earlier. Before that we had a fourth part of the world's population killed. Then we had a third part, and now we have another third part of men. They, The specific time <clears throat> had arrived. They had been prepared there for a day and a month and an hour the precise time in which God would release them. And so we see them at that point then of the sounding of the sixth trumpet, we see them being released. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand, and I heard the number of them. That equals the number of the Chinese army today, the king of the east that's going to be coming and dealing with the issues of Jerusalem uh, during the tribulational period. They boast today this is the size of their army. won't be hard to imagine how God can gather them together for battle. And I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of jansia and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were the heads like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and from their mouths fire and smoke and brimstone issue. The conjecture today is, are these literal horses, literal living creatures, or are they military weapons? Are they the development of helicopters that certainly Isaiah, as he speaks about these things, and even John, as he has given the revelation of these things, would not have a language graphic enough to identify the mechanized circumstance that we use in battle today. Uh, the scripture is not definitive as to whether these are to be understood literally or whether they are going to be representative of military vehicles. By these, a third part of men are killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like serpents, but they had heads, and with them they do hurt. The problem I have with identifying that with an Apache helicopter or later development uh, of that is... uh, the uh, limitation, they're not able to kill 
they're only able to hurt. And God himself would have to perform a miracle to keep that Apache helicopter uh, from killing rather than just hurting. But there's going to be a plague then that will wipe out one-third of all of mankind. And uh, uh, we have uh, repeatedly seen God's promise of judgment. In verse 20 it says, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of their works. Can you imagine such judgment and calamity and uh, the knowledge that it is Jehovah God that is doing this, and rather than repent, they curse God and seek to die. Neither repented they of their murderers, nor of their sorcerers, nor of their fornications, nor of their thefts. The second woe, then, is worse than the first, but there is still time for repentance. The ungodly, like the pagans of an uncultured society, and the murders and sorceries and immorality, punishment does not soften a hardened heart, but only make that heart Harder. Understanding the prophecy that's revealed here in Revelation serves a number of functions, among which is information, motivation, and preparation. The information that we receive here provides us with an understanding of what is going to occur helps us better understand what's going on today as the stage in heaven and the stage on earth is being set. Current events declare to us the idolatrous behavior of our society today. We notice that there is the statement then and the rest of the men that were not killed by the plagues, yet repented not of their works, the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. And yet they worship them. I raise the question, is it possible that a civilized world could revert to pagan idolatry. In uh, my early years of preaching and teaching the Word of God, I just could not get a grasp of man returning to idol worship as we find in the undeveloped countries of the world <clears throat> where they make a God in their image rather than recognizing that they were made in the image of God. <clears throat> there are three kinds of idolatry that are prominent today and uh, we see a reference here that indicates just how far this nation of America has come in its departure from God to the worship even of pagan practices, Satanism and demonic activity is prevalent among us and being fostered to a great deal by the music industry and certainly in the film industry and in all areas of entertainment. We have that. But there are three forms of idolatry I want to address in closing. Pagan idolatry is the easiest to recognize because it takes on the most obvious forms. It's some form of ceremony or ritual that's performed to a deity, a self-named deity, that is not the God of the Bible. Pagan idolatry is characteristic uh, of practices that are explicitly spiritual in nature, but they do not evolve, involve God the Father, God the Son, nor the Holy Spirit, but rather some other named or in some cases 
an unnamed God. You may remember in the days of Paul, as he spoke to the Athens, uh, he said, I perceive in all things you're superstitious because when I went around to see all of your gods and your altars, you had a god to the sun, uh, an altar for the god of the sun and one of the moon and of the stars and of sex and of stone. Uh, and one thing after another. And then he said, I spotted an altar that said to the unknown God. In case they had left one out, they wanted then to have a worship to the unknown God. And certainly that pagan practice of worshiping inanimate idols, idols that cannot breathe or have no life or not able to do anything for man become the object of worship. I would suggest we are headed once again in that direction. But there is secular idolatry. Secular idolatry is a little harder to spot uh, because it is generally uh, practiced without religious language or any spiritual practices that are normally associated with worship. The gods of our culture include sex and money and power and physical appearance, family, romance, fame, leisure, celebrities, success, food, comfort, image. That kind of thing is popular in our society today where that becomes people's god. Those things become the object of adoration and worship rather than the true and the living God. And it is that secularism that I saw in my uh, early ministry uh, that was no doubt going to be uh, so prominent in this day rather than uh, the worship of man-made gods. But I've had to back off from that a bit and believe now that we can get back to that paganism as we destroy the very culture, we destroy the civilization of a society and revert to it. But one of the covert areas of idolatry that we need to address in closing is that idolatry of religion. Religion can become an idol. Churches are full of religious idolatry because there are always people who go through the motions of religious practice. I sometimes have grieved that our order of service, the way that we conduct a service, becomes part of that religious shrine. I, uh, uh, When I was pastor of a church in Monrovia, I said that I believed that we had it all backwards. And some of my other pastorates, I had reversed the order of service that the sermon should prepare us for worship. Instead, we do the singing and the praising and then we go to the sermon. And so I said, we're going to reverse that structure here and I'm going to preach and then we're going to have a time motivated by the word to worship and praise God. I got halfway through my sermon and one of the men in the congregation raised his hand and I said, yes, Brother Allen. And he said, you didn't make the announcements. Right in the middle of my message, you didn't make the announcements. I said, no, Mr. Allen, at the end of the service, we're going, after we have had our praise time, uh, then we're going to make the announcements and we're going to close and go our way. But we get locked into a certain form of worship. I removed uh, the pulpit from a church in Sacramento and you would have thought I committed adultery in the altar. Uh, it, it almost split the church. Well, it did split the church in, in uh, response and whatnot. And the church voted for it to be removed, but the response was so angry, we left it in place. We get locked into certain specifics and a way to do certain things, 
that can become an idol to us. Everything we do together should motivate us and direct us into learning more, understanding more, and applying it all in our daily walk of life. Jesus dealt more with the religious idolaters in his day. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you whited sepulchers that are full of dead men's bones. That's how he spoke to the religious leaders of his day because their form and their structure had become their worship. So 60 years ago when I began to preach against idolatry, I envisioned that kind of idolatry. Little did I recognize how degenerate we would become so that we might even get back to the worship of demons and of devils. We have arrived. The church is God's last witness before these judgments come. God is going to appoint 144,000. Well, He's already appointed them. He's going to bring about 144,000 evangelists. It's too late then to escape that tribulation. We have the message. We know the future. God has revealed it to us. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are sojourners here on earth. That is, we are foreigners living alongside the locals to do the king's business. We would do well to be about our father's business. But it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believeth, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We need to hear God's Message in the day of David, declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among God's people.